What secret algorithms are being used to make life-changing decisions that will affect you or the ones you care about? Today on the Harvard Data Science Review Podcast, we examine one that determines people's freedom, both sides of the scales of justice. I'm Liberty Vittert, feature editor of the Harvard Data Science Review, and I, along with my co-host, our editor-in-chief, Shali Meng, are discussing the use of secret or black box algorithms in the criminal justice system. How do judges decide who gets bail and how high the bail is? How is parole decided or how much supervision someone has during parole? What are the problems with these secret algorithms that either make these decisions or are used by decision makers to lay down a ruling? We bring in Cynthia Rudin, a leading data scientist and professor of computer science at Duke University and the director of the Interpretal Machine Learning Lab as well as Brandon Garrett, professor of law and founder of the Wilson Center for Science and Justice at Duke University. Thank you for being here with us. You know, we use this word compass a lot, this compass algorithm, which is where all this discussion has begun and your fabulous article came from. For our audience, the compass is the correctional offender management profiling for alternative sanctions. But if you could just sort of give us a background on what compass is, where it came from, and why this became of interest to you in the first place. Sure. So compass is a predictive model. It's supposed to predict whether people will commit a crime in the future. And it's used in various types of decisions that determine people's freedom, like parole decisions or bail decisions. And if predictive models are so complicated that people make mistakes typing them in or they don't understand kind of how their freedom is being taken away, um, then we have a problem in our justice system. And is this used all over the place? How many different courtrooms would this be used in or how many people are really affected by this? I mean, I guess fairly frequently is a way to describe it. Like it's, there are a lot of good reasons why Compass has gotten lots of attention and why people why it's, it's notorious and why researchers gravitated towards it. But it's very, very, very much in the minority in terms of risk assessment use, instruments used around the country. And risk assessments are used in a lot of contexts. And I think, you know, it's sort of like Compass has gotten attention because it sort of crystallizes some concerns that people have had about risk assessments, but it really isn't a good example or a good illustration of issues with many other uses of risk assessment. And risk assessment is really, really pervasive in, in criminal justice at, at every stage, whether it's pretrial, probation, eligibility for different types of programs. Uh, there's just a lot of uses of risk assessment and other uses of prediction using other types of instruments in policing and other contexts. There are a lot of free instruments out there. And fortunately, in a lot of ways, lots of jurisdictions would rather use something that's free than to pay for something. And that said, like Compass, for better or for worse, does crystallize certain issues and challenges and fairness problems with risk assessment. So just to be clear, when you say risk assessment, you mean here's a judge deciding if someone gets out on parole or not, and they use this algorithm to give a risk assessment of the person's risk of reoffending or offending while they're out on parole, and then makes a decision from this. It really depends. So for example, um, one common use of risk assessments is not, does the person get out on parole? There may be pretty clear rules about when the person is going to be released. It's when the person is eligible for parole, what level of supervision do they get? Do they get more intensive supervision or not? In other contexts, though, it really is about, well, 
um, how long should this person's sentence be, or should this person be released or not on bail. But the risk assessment is also just a piece of information that the decision maker gets. And so, for example, at a bail hearing, I watch a lot of videos of bail hearings, for better or for worse. The uh, judicial officer at the bail hearing sees the person who was arrested right there. They know the person's race. Uh, they know the person's criminal record. They know what the person is charged with. Right? They have a lot of pieces of information. In some jurisdictions, the person doesn't have a public defender and, and has to try to figure out how to speak for themselves. But they may say some things like, I'm homeless. I had nowhere to go. Like, yeah, I was loitering. Or there may be a public defender that also offers other information. And the prosecutor will be there, too, making a case saying, look at the person's prior record, look at the prior court appearance history of this person. And so there's a lot of information that the hearing officer, the judicial officer has. In many jurisdictions, there really may even be some kind of a professional that talks to the person, a social worker that, that interviews the person before the bail hearing. And the judicial officer has that report, too. Sometimes as part of that report, they'll have a risk assessment, which will give a score saying this person's high risk or low risk. And in no jurisdiction are they required to follow the risk assessment. They may look at, well, there's this risk assessment, but I just can't get around the fact that this person was arrested for a very serious crime. Uh, there's nothing that stops the judicial officer from going with their gut and ignoring the risk assessment. That said, in some jurisdictions, you hear that judicial officers you know, find the risk assessment really valuable, that they trust something that's quantitative more than the other information. In other jurisdictions, you hear the opposite. The judges are like, yeah, this sounds like my minority report. I don't, I don't know what it is. Uh, I know what I'm doing. I have been looking at serious evidence at serious hearings for years, and I have serious momentous decisions to make. I don't need some score. So, so Brandon, you're saying that the practice uh, in reality varies a lot. And uh, my understanding, the Compass gets particular attention partly because there this article by ProPublica about its potential, you know, problems in the algorithm. But Cynthia, can you uh, tell the audience a little bit about your study because you present issues with both the Compass, you know, potential problems with itself, as well as the analysis done by ProPublica, including how they present the results. Yeah. So let me give you a little background. So before ProPublica wrote their article in 2016, a year before that, we had written an article saying you don't need black box models to predict recidivism. You can do it just as well with simple models. And race is not an important factor. Race is unfortunately correlated with things like number of past crimes and also age, and that's due to systemic racism in society. But if you think it's okay to take into account the number of prior crimes and age, then um, race doesn't give you any additional information to predict recidivism. So that's that's what we wrote in our, our paper. And then ProPublica comes out with this article saying, there's a black box model that's used very widely in the justice system, and it depends on race. And we thought, hold on a second, what's going on? First of all, black box. You don't need a black box. It depends on race. It doesn't need to depend on race, so why would it depend on race? And so we were trying to figure out what happened. Like, were we wrong in our 2015 article? Or, you know, what, what happened here? How do you reconcile this discrepancy? And in the meantime, the ProPublica article completely blew up. Like, the whole field of computer science essentially was talking about this article because the idea that an algorithm is being used in these important decisions that determine people's freedom and that it's racially biased basically is sort of counter to everything that everybody wants from algorithms. Mm -hmm. So it sort of made the entire field of algorithmic fairness blossom. But while doing that, they sort of 
like left out the fact that compass is still a black box. We don't actually know whether it depends on race. So we were thinking it's not really true that you can have fairness without interpretability. Like if you don't know how your data is being used, uh, then you can't tell if something is fair. So we said, look, we're going to actually get down to the bottom of this. So we went back to ProPublica's original analysis to try to figure out what they did and why we had a discrepancy between our 2015 article and their 2016 article. Mm-hmm. And what we found was that their analysis um, had some serious technical problems in it. What they had done in their article, this is ProPublica, they'd taken data from Florida the data from Florida was, you know, different factors that you could use to predict whether someone would be would would be arrested, and then you you find out whether they're actually arrested or not. Okay, so you can use that to build a predictive model, and we looked at what they did. It turns out that they had approximated compass with a linear model, mm-hmm. which means a very simple model. They had approximated compass with this other model that depended on race, and then they declared that therefore compass depends on race. Um, and this mathematically is not a valid thing to do. It's not a valid thing to conclude. And so uh, we went back and tried to figure out what happened here and whether Compass actually does depend on race when you take into account nonlinearities that we sort of saw in the data. And so when we did that, we did not see the same thing as ProPublica. We did not see that Compass necessarily depends on race. Um, so we, we completely disagreed with ProPublica's conclusion in our article. And then we revealed the fact that, hold on, there's another problem with Compass, which is that, hey, it's not transparent. And in fact, we were able to highlight many cases where it seemed as if the Compass score was calculated wrong. And the way we figured that out was that we found people with absurdly low Compass scores, which means low risk, but they had very lengthy criminal histories. They had lots of prior arrests, lots of prior charges for fairly serious crimes and they got like the lowest possible compass violence score and we were thinking this this looks really strange um but if the scores were transparent we could actually prevent mistakes like this from happening i want to take a step back that before we get to this transparency idea i want to talk a little bit more about the fairness concept Cynthia, you said this, and Brandon, you touched on it when you in, in your discussant paper. But you know, you say in some ways that fairness almost needs to be set aside because we don't really have a definition of fair. Um, and in fact, you showed that there were sort of multiple definitions of fairness. So, could you explain for our listeners about how Compass could see something as unfair, but ProPublica wouldn't, or what would be an example of sort of competing definitions of fairness? Well, I'm not sure that we sort of said we should set aside fairness. I think the language there was meant to say, in this article, we're not going to look at the traditional notions of fairness, right? Balance between different racial groups. Instead, we're going to look at fairness through the lens of transparency. And so that's why our article was different than all of the other articles on algorithmic fairness, because it actually looked at the issue of transparency as a fundamental issue of fairness, rather than just sort of looking at ratios of positives and negative rates among different um, racial groups. In law, we talk about race discrimination, and race discrimination is worse than unfair. It's invidious discrimination. And Mm -hmm. so I understand that in computer science and in other fields, you sometimes talk more broadly about unfairness, but there can be procedural unfairness, like this is a bad procedure. Something shouldn't happen to you in court for reasons that are secret. And that's not even just transparency, like that's due process, right? If the government is doing something to you, then you have a right to have notice and an opportunity to respond. 
And so in law, we sometimes are uncomfortable with broad terms like fairness. I understand why terms like fairness are important because there are also narrow legal categories. And for example, uh, like there's a separate question, like could a risk assessment instrument be so racially biased that you can sue and win a constitutional claim over that? Maybe you lose that lawsuit depending on how it's used, but we would nevertheless say that it's normatively troubling. And so it may not be actionable equal protection clause violating race discrimination. It might not violate civil rights statutes, but it could still be really troubling for government to do that. And we might say that it's still unfair. So similarly, there are other inequities that may not rise to the level of a legal violation, a constitutional violation, and, and yet it's not a good look, it's wrong, it shouldn't happen. And so that, that's why it can be both a good thing to have broader terms like fairness. It's a reason why in, in many communities we use terms like equity and not just inequality, but sometimes things are just flat out constitutional violations and it's important to, to note that as well. So, Brenda, I want to follow up just quickly because you raised a very important uh, point, particularly in the in the kind of a you know mathematical world, in the in, in the data science world. Typically, when they try to put down what fairness means, you know, in terms of the procedure, inevitably becomes some equality, mathematical equality, uh, not necessarily the kind of equality you talk about, right? Something equal to something. The two have the same predictive probability. The two have the same kind of risk, you know, numbers. And uh, uh, but I guess we probably would all agree that you know just because something mathematically equal does not imply they're actually fair. Uh, no, well, yeah, uh, and, and not only that, but in law, like for example, it can matter what the intent of something is. Yes. And so e- even if outcomes are the same as between racial groups, if something was intended uh, to be racially discriminatory, if someone is intentionally taking race into account or using a racial classification, that can be race discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, like separate but equal doesn't work under our constitution. Right. And, so, and, and that's in part why, why one needs to know, okay, if there's a risk assessment instrument, is it explicitly using race? Could people be intentionally using race? Um, that said, it's also important to note that we see racially biased outcomes coming out of bail decision making in this country without risk assessment, including because it's it, it can be quite obvious in the courtroom what someone's race is. And so, you know, judicial officers have race in front of them every day. And the, the use of race in our criminal system is front and center in terms of national, state and local politics. You know, we, we can't hide from the fact that race plays a role in decisions that people make mm-hmm. and that racial biases, whether they're, people are aware of them or not, may influence their decision making. And that can nevertheless be really hard to show racial discrimination. It's, it's not easy to make a claim of discrimination about patterns in our criminal system. But it, it really does matter, not just what the outcomes are, but how the system works. It's also it's much easier to correct a biased algorithm than it is to correct a whole lot of biased judges. Um, so that's something we need to think about when determining overall what's best for the justice system. I think these are all terrific points, and particularly, Brandon, your point, I think it's really important uh, for the data science community to hear because those of us who try and do analysis, write on things, evaluate metric, inevitably, in the end, look at whether something equal or not, and typically some kind of outcome, and, and uh, um, your, your point of intention is, uh, is an extremely important one. Do you have advice to the general data science community about, you know, how do you how do you measure these intentions? Like, what are the good examples where those things can be uh, quantified and in a more systematic way than just say, well, there is an intention here? 
Let's say it's complicated. So like disparate impacts based on race and other invidious factors, like that can be actionable, but so can an intent to discriminate. And so can the use of race or other categories as a classification, depending on how it's used and whether it's used with other factors. So it gets really, really complicated. And so, for example, courts have said that if police are doing searches, they can't just search for black or Latinx suspect. But if they do have a suspect description of a particular person that committed an offense and race is part of that profile, you're allowed to look for someone if you have a particular suspect in mind. So racial profiling can be illegal and unconstitutional discrimination, but looking for a person of a particular race, of a particular height, who is also of a particular age range and dressed a particular way, that's like mm-hmm. that's what police do when they look for suspects and they're allowed to do right. that. And so there's a lot of unfortunate context, which is why people have to hire lawyers in assessing these questions of what counts as discrimination. But then it, from some ways, like from a research perspective, like if you're not a lawyer, you're not suing anyone. There's still just a question of like, are bad things happening to people because of their race? And is the system biased? And can we do something about it? And I think uh, that that's a, often a more productive way of looking at things. Mm-hmm. And like Cynthia says, it can be hard to change ingrained behavior. And we know that there have been differences based on race and how decision-making gets done in the criminal system. And we've also seen successful policy interventions that have reduced racial disparities. So there's a question whether quantitative information and data science can can play a role in reducing those disparities. We've seen examples of quantitative approaches helping to de-bias decision-making. We've also seen uh, other approaches that can de-bias decision-making, like removing contextual information from the process or doing other things like bringing in public defenders, helping someone make a more individualized case. So I think there's a lot of work that's being done using different methods to think about how to eliminate discrimination in our criminal system. I don't think we have a clear winner in terms of what the right way is, and it may depend on the context. I wanted to um, ask a little bit about this transparency idea. And again, I'm just picking and choosing words from the article, so tell me when I'm wrong. But, you know, if we're if we're talking about transparency, you know, if, and in my mind, this is a we can't get these algorithms necessarily perfect or unbiased, or at least we don't have them yet or something like Compass. So if the question is transparency, what does that really mean in practice? And I'm going to just quote, it said, source code needs to be made available to criminal defendants. And to me, it's almost like transparency isn't just about giving people source code. Because you have a public defender, they have zillions of clients, and they may not even know how to open source code or what source code even means. So how do we truly make something transparent where it's usable transparency for people who are in the process of undergoing a bail hearing? Or how do they actually use it so that it's transparent? It's like the terms and conditions. If they're 2,000 pages, you have no idea what's inside of it anyway. It can be as transparent as it wants, but it doesn't help anybody. Well, we've been advocating for very simple risk scoring models where you have you get points for various things like the number of crimes you committed in the past or sort of for parole decisions you want to include things like how much education people completed in prison so that you know people can earn points to to help them get out and so on. And we think these point scores seem to be just as accurate as the best black box models we can construct on these data sets. So that's why we've been advocating for such simple models. Well, since yeah, that uh, that actually brings me to your other article for Harvard Data Science Review, uh, the one you wrote about the black box. I want to tell you, 
until Liberty wrote an article about the 2020 election. Yours, that one was the most viewed article. Uh, on Harvard Data Science Review, really a, a lot of review. I have every faith Cynthia is going to write one that's going to beat mine next. Yes,、uh, and but you know I remember that it was a great example that you wrote that article about the experience you had attending this particular conference, and I think it would be great to share with the audience a little bit about、uh, you know that experience and how you feel so strongly about you don't need these black box models as as you were saying, but you have simpler ones just do as well. Okay, so, so just to just to put everything in context, this was a workshop that went with the Explainable Machine Learning Challenge, which was the first ever data science competition dealing with interpretability or explainability. And they gave us data all the, all the competitors. They gave us data from FICO, and this was、um, HELOC data, so loan decisions. So you get you get a whole bunch of information about people's. Uh, loan payback information, like their financial information, and and then you're supposed to predict whether or not they're going to pay back their loan. Okay, so we had this data, and I said to my team, my students and my collaborators, I was like, okay, let's figure out if we need a black box for this data set. And so we tried all different machine learning methods, like the whole arsenal of our machine learning techniques, and we figured out very quickly that we were not getting any benefit from a black box model for this data set. And so we were able to actually design fairly simple models that predicted, you know, really well, or models that were decomposable or had other characteristics that made them easy to understand. So we submitted this thing, right? We submitted this one of these models that you could understand, and this was. Not following the rules of the competition. The competition told us create a black box and explain it, and we're going to judge you on your explanations. I so I went, I went into the the workshop, and the organizer of the competition got up there and he put up two slides. He's like, "This is a doctor, and this is a robot. And which one of them do you want doing surgery on you? Do you want the doctor who can explain everything to you, and there's like a thirty percent chance you would die?" Or do you want the robot to do your surgery, where you'd only have a ten percent chance you die? I can't remember the percentages, but you get the idea. And the robot can't tell you anything about what it's doing. So it's like you get accuracy with no explanations, or you get explanations with no accuracy. And he said, "Which of these do you want?" And I'm sitting there in the audience, going, "What the frick is he talking about? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Why? Why is he creating this?" This sort of situation where you have to choose between these two things. I mean, as soon as somebody builds a robot that explains itself, then you don't need to even ask this question. And the truth is that in machine learning, for every type of data that I've ever worked on, we've been able to create a model that explained itself. So I got up there and I was asking questions to the audience, like, "What population was this?" With this, was this two percent and seventy percent trained on? How do you actually know that these percentages are correct? How do you know that you don't have the rare condition that's going to force you to be part of that robot's two percent? You know, data is messy. Data is always messy. The whole situation made no sense. And then I happened to be visiting Joanna Radian, a fantastic historian, and I was telling her about this, and I said. Come on, we've got to write something about this. And then the more I explained it to her, the more she told me. Like into the night, she told me she's like, "This is crazy. I can't believe this. I can't believe these people are doing this and that they think this." And I was like, "Yeah, the whole machine learning world thinks like this. They think that if it's a black box, it's got to be more accurate." And she's like, "It's crazy. It's crazy." And so yeah, we wrote that article. So I, I it's called exactly. "Why Are We Using Black Box Models in AI When We Don't Need to: A Lesson from an Explainable AI Competition." That's what it's called, and that certainly has attracted lots of attention, and and rightly so. And so, thank you again, 
things here for your two great articles for HDSR. We are always looking forward for more. Well, I have one in review that you guys could accept. It'd be nice. <laughs> very, nice. very nice. I like okay. this plug. No, you have them where you want them. But, but I'm going to pass on to my, because uh, I'm on sabbatical, so these are handled by two intro co-editors. I'm going to remind them. <laughs> well, Brandon, you know, we talked a little bit about the role of judges and sort of where the risk assessment store comes in versus, you know, a bail officer sitting there and looking. But, you know, I was reading this this one article about a study that showed how bad judges actually are at predicting whether a criminal will reoffend or not. You know, this idea of I need to look you in the eye and decide if you're going to reoffend and they're they're actually not very good at it. I guess it's almost one of the reasons Compass began or the idea of having algorithms to make these decisions. So I know you talked about this transparency of point systems, but what really is the best way to move forward? You know, if judges, if individuals are really bad at deciding, there's these lots of issues with these especially non-transparent algorithms. What is the best recommendation for the legal system to move forward? Well, again, there are lots of highly transparent algorithms and really simple ones that give you good information about about risk. And, you know, there's been research on risk prediction going back decades. And a lot of that research supports the idea that there are a lot of complex things about criminal behavior and a, a lot of rare events when you're in terms of the crimes that the public is most worried about, like shootings. But that for more routine criminal behavior, at least, there's a lot more data and the predictors have more to do with someone's criminal history and their age. Like men between the ages of 18 and 25 are more likely to engage in some criminal acts. And people who have prior records are more likely to, to commit criminal acts. And, and that's counterintuitive because, you know, lawyers, decision makers, what you have in front of you is the serious thing maybe that this person is accused of. But if they don't have a prior record, they may be really low risk. Conversely, someone who's engaged in a whole pattern of behavior may be charged with something really minor, but may actually be, be higher risk. And so that's what makes some of the, the empirical data a little bit counterintuitive and hard for decision makers to take into account. And that said, there's some jurisdictions where we've had, there's been real success in dramatically reducing the number of people in custody through the use of these empirical instruments. And so uh, New Jersey is an example that people point to. They adopted a simple instrument called the Public Safety Assessment, the PSA, which is not proprietary, it's not expensive. It was developed by a private foundation and, uh, and over time researchers have done some work with it. And there's certainly lots of issues in how you adapt an instrument like that to your jurisdiction and decide how to use it and the like, uh, but it's not a secret how it works. And there's been an enormous reduction in pretrial detention, including because the judges embraced it in that state and moved away from deciding whether to put people in jail kind of based on their gut. Conversely, though, there's evidence out of Kentucky where the same instrument was embraced by some judges and by the Supreme Court, which kept issuing memos to the judges saying, like, you should be looking at the risk assessment more seriously, not just doing what you're used to doing. And there's a fair amount of evidence that judges have widely ignored the risk assessment. And some of them have even openly described how they hate it and would love to just tear it up and throw it away. Another problem with these risk assessments, however, is that they often are trying to inform binary decision-making mm -hmm. and they may not be well enough designed to inform people who are making a choice that's a little bit more complicated. It's not just, are we gonna put this person in jail or release them? But there's also the, 
it might be fine to release this person in the community, but we want some supervision and we want this person to check in with pretrial services every month. And, you know, Cynthia and I, with, with some wonderful colleagues here at Duke and a former postdoc fellow of mine, Travis Hill Carlisle, are looking at a paper evaluating a pretrial services program, which is really about that third option. Do you release the person or do you release them with some conditions, which is also quite common. You know, there are an enormous number of people arrested every year, and there's no way that the vast majority of those people can be put in a jail, nor should they be put in a jail. Mm-hmm. We, we're a really detention-happy country these days. It used to be that the norm was that if you get charged with a crime, you get punished once you get convicted. Then you have to serve a prison sentence. The idea that you would jail people who are awaiting charges and that there would be a cash bail decision whether that person should be detained while awaiting charges, that, that's sort of a newer thing. Uh, there's another weird overlay here where let's say a judge is in one of these jurisdictions that has risk assessment and that's informing their pretrial decision. Most states in this country, the mechanism by which you keep someone in jail is cash bail. And so let's, if you think someone is high risk and you really believe this information you have from the instrument, or maybe the instrument says low risk, but you don't care. The person's arrested for a very serious crime. You think the person's high risk and you want that person to be in jail because you think there's a terrible public safety threat. Normally, you can't just order that person to be put in jail. You have to impose a cash bond, and you'll impose that cash bond based on what you think the person can pay. But there was, there was just another day, a tragic incident, incidents in Houston where someone shot a girlfriend or partner or something like that, and the person was out on bond. The judge set a $250,000 bond, probably thinking, with, understandably, that that's a really high bond. That person's going to end up in the jail. But the person made the bond. Uh, judges don't know necessarily. And so they can set a really high bond and someone really dangerous can get out. And so there's this troubling overlay between a cash bond system and some of the assumptions and rules we've had in our criminal system and then empirical data. And it's a really uncomfortable relationship. I just wanted to follow up on that. And this there may not even be an answer to this, but just like you said, there's that tragic case. There was that one j- that just happened in Los Angeles. There was a girl who was stabbed to death and she was working in a furniture store. And they just apprehended the suspect. And he was out on, I think, $50,000 bond. Is there research on how well these work in different jurisdictions? It also sounds like there's different systems used all over the country. Well, and unfortunately, in a lot of states, there is a right to a cash bond. Some jurisdictions are looking more into an approach where it really is a decision. Do you release the person? Do you release the person with conditions? Or do you detain the person? But ability to pay cash should have nothing to do with it. That could be abused too. You could just do preventative detention and say, for some people, if you have the money, it's highly protective of your liberty. If you have $500, then you can get out of jail really, really quickly. And that, that works really well for those people if they're low risk and they don't even have to wait for a bail hearing in some jurisdictions. You can just sort of pay the clerk and get out of jail free. And unfortunately, you know, back to Cynthia's wonderful paper in The Compass, there are all kinds of quantitative instruments that get used in different contexts by law enforcement, by judges, that wouldn't meet minimal research standards. But it's really, nevertheless, hard to challenge the use of those different types of instruments unless they're used as evidence in a trial. And even there, we have really sketchy black box evidence used at criminal trials, which really shouldn't pass muster as sound scientific evidence, but judges let it in because they're used to letting it in. So, I mean, just in general, the criminal system isn't the place where you would look for a really well thought out, fair, accurate, humane treatment of people. But that said, I mean, which is why this is a great podcast, 
it's an important thing for the scientific community and the research community to step in and say like, don't be using our data in, in these deeply problematic ways. Like we, mm-hmm. we don't want to be complicit in this. And I think it's in a, in a very, very important conversation to have because in some contexts, shady researchers or even good researchers have had their research dragged into the criminal system in ways that were not intended and, and aren't appropriate. And I think, you know, at least some people in the public believe in the sound use of science and, and it can be influential if, if uses of data can help to eliminate injustices or if unjust use of data can be eliminated. Thank you, uh, Brandon. Your point is extremely well taken, particularly in terms of message to the general data science community. You as a leading scholar, legal scholar, and educator, and has had a lot of practical experiences, do you see that, is there some needs to provide better training of the judges uh, for understanding what data science can or cannot do or should not do, and, and vice versa, as you were talking about, you know, how the the, the message from the legal world will tell the scientists that you may have the, all the well-intentioned, but you look, you end up actually really hurting the situation. It's a really important dialogue. And there's also a separate warning that it's really important to have this connection between law and data science, including because of the quality of criminal justice data, that no one is investing in getting information right in the criminal legal system. And mm-hmm. so some of the things that Cynthia found about just like just rampant errors in terms of information relied upon to make important decisions in the criminal system. And that's obviously not limited to risk assessment instruments. There can be all sorts of other errors, factual errors, right? That this person has a prior record. Well, actually they they didn't. Or I just saw a simple case where just, this person uh, should be jailed because they failed to appear, they're in violation. Well, actually that was excused. The judge actually said that that person wasn't supposed to have been required to appear. I see. You know, just all kinds of errors occur. And just quality control in general is a problem in the criminal system. But you also sometimes have researchers look at data, which which has quality issues, which they don't appreciate because they're used to looking at real data sets from contexts where data is produced carefully. You know, criminologists are more used to working with highly problematic criminal law data, and they know where some of the defects and corruption is. Uh, there are other types of criminal law data which are more reliable, and it can be trusted. And it's also, there's a whole process involved. And so there's a reason, right, why, for example, in the risk assessment literature, people are really concerned about arrest data because there's so much discretion involved in arrests. There's enormous opportunity for racial bias to play a role in arrests. We know that race plays a role and that there are enormous race disparities in who gets arrested. And yet one measure of the quality of arrest data is like a a lot of arrests don't result in charges or the charges get thrown out right away. I see. Uh, and so there's a lot of just all kinds of noise in the data that's collected in our criminal system. And so to sort of understand the legal and practical context in which errors and noise fill in the data, it, it does require some collaboration. And, and, and I guess because, because mass incarceration and racial injustice is such a pressing problem in our country, that kind mm. of collaboration has become much, much, much more common. All of our students are coming to us wanting to work on projects that could have the potential to improve our criminal system. And there's been enormous energy among students in the research space and among policymakers. And so that that is all really positive. But these are these are really, really challenging systems to work with and to push change with, within or from the outside. Thank you so much. This is clearly is a long conversation, uh, not only just for us, but for the society. And uh, uh, we can really, uh, we have so many topics here, so many thoughts. But but the question I have is this podcast will be mostly talk about 
the use of data in you know in you know in the justice system. But since you already also mentioned about pr- predicting loans, right, whether people will pay off or not. Uh, what are the other kind of examples? Uh, you know, secret algorithm you think is problematic. You have work on. You're aware of that goes on in our society that people should be generally aware of and also, you know, pay as much attention as we're paying for topics as as the one we just talked about. Well, okay, so let's think about where algorithms are used right now in high-stakes decisions. So besides the criminal justice system, we have loans, which determine whether people can get a house or, a, you know, start a company or, or get a car or something like that. And those are very life-changing um, questions. You have healthcare. There's tons and tons of algorithms that are used in healthcare that doctors use every day. And now, you know, they're, they're trying to use very complicated algorithms in medical imaging. And some of those have been problematic where they've been approved by the FDA and then they launch the algorithm into the real world and lo and behold, it doesn't work. And nobody knows why, because it's a black box. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that I think, uh, healthcare is a major issue, and healthcare has similar problems to the justice system in the sense that the data is very, very messy. A lot, some of the data is really, really messy. And then you have things like air quality detection, right? We've had cases in the past where uh, black box algorithms had told people that it was okay to go outside on days when there was like a layer of ash on people's cars from the wildfires, right? So you know, putting a lot of people in danger all at once, and nobody knows what happened in some of these cases. So anything where it's like a super high stakes decision that determines people's freedom or possibilities in life. Um, also things like self-driving cars, right? Uh, so, oh. you know, I have a lot of friends who are experts in self-driving cars, and they say that our computer vision systems are just not ready for that yet. And yet, here we go, we're, we're launching them out. And, and you know, they're, they're not always doing things that are well, they're killing people. Let's just say it that way. Um, so, I mean, you know, there's a lot of high stakes situations where we need to be very, very careful about um, what data we're using, whether or not we evaluate the performance correctly in a way that generalizes, um, and you know, whether we're whether we're transparent enough. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I just want to mention that you know we are working on another episode. It will be on the. Uh, driverless car and all these issues, and uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, the the probably the silver lining here is to the data science community is uh, there are just tons of things that we will always have a job, be always busy. There are so many issues that needs to be dealt with. And uh, Liberty, your final question. I wanted to ask both of you, um, Cynthia, from sort of more of a data science perspective, Brandon, more from a legal perspective. If you could have one data set, one clean data set. Magic wand, it could be any data set you wanted that you think would solve the issue of fairness and transparency in the criminal justice system. What would it be? Actually, one thing we we really need, which is a really fundamental thing and we, and we can't get, is if we want to understand incidents of crime and why it happens and what to do about it, we need to actually know something about when crimes happen. But of course, most crime isn't reported. Um, some crime doesn't involve a victim, and why would someone turn themselves in if they're, you know, privately consuming drugs that aren't allowed? Many other crimes aren't reported, so we rely on things like people who get caught and arrested to say something about the problem of crime in this country. But we know that there's vast underreporting, and in terms of who gets arrested, who later then gets convicted, there are all sorts of 
judgments and decisions. But that's sort of the holy grail for criminologists, right, is to understand, like, well, how often does crime actually happen, the stuff that we call crime, and which is also socially constructed. Anyway, we don't have that, and I don't think we can. So I don't have a really great answer for you, because I sort of feel like the risk assessments are t- sort of too late, right? That's after people have committed the crime. And what we'd really like is to prevent for people from commit- from wanting to commit crimes. And so then it gets into questions of education, like, you know, these are young people committing crimes. How come they didn't get proper education? What can we do about that? Or can we um, design a program that will encourage people to to not commit crimes in the future? So, you know, it makes me sort of want to ask for data sets about education and about evaluating these educational programs or deterrence programs. I don't think that's going to answer fairness in the justice system, but certainly if we knew how to educate people to make them less likely to commit crimes, it would certainly make the whole system more fair and we'd have less crime, which would be great. Thank you to both of you. You have given us and the audience here a lot of things to think about and uh, all these questions. There's no simple solution. There are lots of things for us to do and it's going data quality is absolutely important. So I want to thank both of you again. And uh, we certainly hope that at some point, you know, we can come can bring you back and talk about the improvement, educations, you know, other, other, other things, because this is definitely an ongoing process for not only the data science community, but for all of us. Thank you again.